Well, good evening, everyone. Dave and I were talking on the phone earlier about songs we'd sing tonight. And we'd say, well, Silent Night. We're like, hmm. But we decided we could do it. <laughs> I had a, the music leader I had whenever I was a teenager, he wrote a song called The Night Wasn't Silent. It was pretty good. It was the opposite. But I think it's from Mary's perspective. What do you think? I think that's what it's from. Is that silent for the mothers whenever you, after you give birth, like afterwards? Can't really remember. I don't know. All righty. Um, uh, so could someone pass these out again? I'm sorry. I, all the guys leave the stage, and I realize they probably would have volunteered if I would have given it to them. Uh, by way of announcement, Bob said this morning that we're going to forget 10% of everything that he said before lunchtime. Um, and that's true. I remember that he said that, but I didn't remember if he said that uh, next Sunday night we're meeting at 5. Was that announced? I can't remember. Okay, so next Sunday night, not 6, but 5 o'clock for a Christmas Eve service. Um, and my dad will be going through Luke 2, I believe. Lots of special music from some of the kids, things like that. So it'll be a nice time, so make sure you come out to that. But before we go any further, let me, uh, let me pray for us once more. Let's pray. Let's pray together, too. Lord, we do come before you, and as always, as we open up your, your word, we do want your help. We need your help. And Lord, I pray that we would not assume as we open it up that we can do it on our own. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be humble under your mighty hand. Please give us grace. Please be, help us be people who, when we look at your word, we wouldn't just think of the person next to us or a different church and how it might apply to them, but that we would think about ourselves and how your word confronts us and how your word convicts us, and how we are changed by it. I pray we'd be those kind of people. And I pray, Lord, as we are looking at a very confrontational passage, a very direct passage, very applicational passage, I pray, Lord, that you would help us remember the work of Christ and not leave that out by any means. Help it be the foundation of our study tonight. And we do pray us all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, be turning over to Hebrews chapter 5. We're moving our way through Hebrews, making progress, and hopefully you're understanding so far. Um, you can always feel free to ask me questions, um, and I might not have the answer, but I'll try to answer those questions. Because we did this study as a discussion uh, about a year ago, and there was a lot of questions that popped up, especially as we got to the passage that we're getting to tonight. Um, now, some of the questions we're going to be answering throughout the coming weeks. So if you don't answer every question tonight in this passage, we will, Lord willing, try to get to those as we go. But I want you to think for a moment about people in your life who are confrontational. You know anyone who's confrontational in your life? Those are people sometimes who they're, they're willing to call you out on just about anything that you do or say or imply or intend. Now think about the opposite. Think about people in life who are non-confrontational. Those are the people who won't confront you at all costs. They might see someone walking off the edge of a cliff, and they might not say anything. They'll say, I don't want to say anything to them. I might have offended them. Maybe they wanted to tip off that cliff. Those two groups of people could not be any more different, could they? Different personalities, different approaches to life, uh, polar opposites. But they do have at least one thing in common. You know what that is? Neither of them like to be confronted themselves. No one likes confrontation. But here in our text, at the end of chapter 5, we have a very blunt 
confrontation from the Word of God to us. If someone spoke these words personally to you, you probably would be greatly offended. Probably take great offense at this. Very strong words. But here they are in God's Word, and we need to deal with them, and we need to let them deal with us. We're going to be confronted tonight with a problem. That's the problem of spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. The author of Hebrews is not going to be confrontational tonight just because it's his personality. He's going to do it because it's necessary and because it's strategic. That's why he's going to do it. And I believe in the church today, in in the church at large, look at the American church, look at the church around the world, I think there's a great deal of spiritual immaturity happening on a regular basis. So I think it's something we need to face squarely ourselves. And as we study Hebrews, as most of these topics we're studying in Hebrews, we're always going to go back to this idea of perseverance, and we need to be confronted on our immaturity so that we can persevere. So an essential topic. Now this passage is not going to tell us everything we need to know about this idea of spiritual immaturity, but it's going to tell us what we need to know in order to identify it, see it for what it is, see it in our own lives. And not, hopefully not just leave us there, but bring us to a place where we can grow. And that's what we're going to do with the Lord's help. So last week we started chapter 5. And we learned last week in the longer passage from chapter 5, 1 through verse 10, that Jesus didn't bypass the requirements of the law. He didn't bypass the requirements of the priesthood. But he fulfilled them all. We saw he met the Old Testament job description of high priest. He carried out the job purpose. And he met all the qualifications. But is Jesus' priesthood just like the Levites? Is there anything different with his? A few differences and key differences. One, his is perfect. And it's permanent. It doesn't stop. When the high priest died in Old Testament times, he was dead. (laughs) His work stopped. Christ lives eternally. He's in heaven, living, interceding for us forever. He is a permanent high priest. But as we get to the end of chapter 5, we're going to march away from this idea of encouragement and instruction and exposition and move straight into confrontation, straight into this direct application. We're going to be entering the third warning passage. How many warning passages are in the book of Hebrews? Anyone remember? There's five total. We're entering to the third one right now. We've already seen the first one at the beginning of chapter 2, and then we saw the second one in chapters 3 and 4, and now we're going to get into the third in chapters 5 and 6. And you can see how they break down, or this particular warning will break down. Tonight we're going to look at the confrontation, and uh, that is the wrong reference. It should be 11 to 14. And then you get to the call to action. That's at the beginning of chapter 6. So, in other words, you are spiritually mature. Get to chapter 6. Now let's press on. Let's move on. And then you have this warning, this strong, stern, very difficult warning there at the beginning of, of chapter 6 as well. And then at the end, for the rest of the chapter, he's going to go back to encouragement. He's not going to leave us hanging, but show us how we can be encouraged and show us where our hope is, the true anchor of our soul, who's Christ. So with all this context in mind, let's read our text. Turn to chapter 5, verse 11. Verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. 
For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's the the word of God. Before we go any further, we need to establish a really important point. Who is the author talking to? What kind of people is he talking to? need to go over a couple definitions. The invisible church. The invisible church. Have you heard that term before? Does that mean people who uh, no longer really come to the church much anymore? They're they're invisible. You don't see them. Maybe they try to get part of the invisible church, so they stop going. No, that's not the case. What is the invisible church? It's the Catholic, not not Roman Catholic, okay? It just means uh, universal. The universal church, which may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect. Okay, all of God's elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. And this church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of Christ that fills all in all. And it's from the London Baptist Confession. That's the visible church. It's got God's whole elect, all of God's actual people, people who have actually been chosen by God. What about the visible church? Also from the uh, London Baptist Confession. It says this. All persons throughout the world, professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation, these kind of people are and may be called visible saints. And of such, all particular congregations should be constituted. This is the visible church. And it's an important point next point that, the, that this confession makes is that the purest churches under heaven, the, even the, the best visible churches, even the best local churches that you have out there, even those are subject to mixture and error. So what are we talking about with all these definitions? In the visible church, you have three groups, three groups of people. You have strong believers. These are men and women who are mature in the faith. They're not perfect but they're mature in the faith. They're able to discern what's right and wrong. They're, they're, they're able to help other people along, too. There's people who are actually able to teach, able to disciple, these kind of things. Secondly, there's going to be false believers in the church. And when I say they're in the church, I don't mean that they are in Christ. These people who are just look right on the outside, they can say the right things, they can make the right professions, but on the inside, they're not real believers. And eventually, these are the people who are going to go out from us and they're going to be shown that they were not really of us. So that's the second group you'll find in a visible church. And then number three, you have the possibility and you have the reality of immature, weaker Christians in the visible church. And everything we're saying right now in terms of the invisible church, the visible church, this is all going to play a key role as we go through these warning passages in Hebrews. So keep these kind of things in mind. But... Our passage tonight is going to help us primarily with identifying spiritual immaturity, identifying this third group we just talked about, people who are immature in the faith. So from your passage tonight, we're going to see five marks of spiritual immaturity. Five marks are going to help us identify in ourselves, and five marks are going to help us be motivated to grow past it. It's going to be very practical, very personal confrontations here. So let's look at the first mark. If you have your notes there, the first mark is lazy listening. 
lazy listening. Verse 1. Concerning him, and who's the him there? I thought you all would know it. Who's the him? Melchizedek. Yeah, it looks like it could be Jesus or Melchizedek if you read it. But if you look at it carefully in the context, it's talking about this man named Melchizedek. Okay, Concerning him, Melchizedek, we have a lot to say. We have much to say. Look what he says now. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So what was he going to say? What was the author going to say? He's going to say, in particular, he had a lot more to say about the priesthood of Christ as it relates to this man in history named Melchizedek. So if you wanted to hear more about Melchizedek, this mystery man, you will hear more about him in chapter 7. But in general, he wanted to finish this exposition of the priesthood of Christ, this theme which is going to be essential for their perseverance in the faith. He wanted to finish this talk on the priesthood of Christ as it relates to Melchizedek, but he had to stop. And when is he going to start again? You'll see in chapter 7 when we get there. But why can't he keep going? Why did he have to stop? Next to the text. He had to address a problem. He says, it's hard to explain. But what reason does he give? Why is it hard to explain? It's not because he had too much information. It wasn't just like it was too much to get through. It wasn't like a 300-page syllabus that he wouldn't be able to get through in a whole semester. It wasn't that he had too much to say. And it's not because he had a time limit on a sermon where if he didn't finish in time, people would start walking out, which that happened sometimes at an assisted living facility. They say, if you don't finish in 20 minutes, they will start walking out. So, well, I'll finish in 20 minutes. And that's, that's true. As soon as you say the amen, boom, they're gone out to dinner time. But that's not the case here. And it's not because, this, get this too, it's not because the information was too intrinsically complicated. That wasn't the problem. It wasn't too complicated. It wasn't too difficult in that sense to wrap their minds around. And it wasn't because it was Sunday night and everyone was sleepy. I didn't know that never happens, but that wasn't the case with them either. So what was the reason? Why was it hard to explain? The exclusive reason is because they had become dull of hearing. That's what the text says. It's not the message. It's not the messenger. The messenger is perfect, but that's not the case here. It's them. Hundreds of years ago, John Calvin made the same observation. He, he states that the cause of the difficulty was not in the subject, but in themselves. So what does it mean to be dull of hearing? You could literally translate this phrase, lazy in the ears. Lazy in the ears. Don't you like that? Lazy in the ears. What's laziness? Is laziness inability? Is laziness a lack of guidance? It can contribute to it, but that's not what laziness is in itself. Does it mean that no one's willing to give you work? doesn't mean that either. It means you skip your God-given responsibilities. That's essentially what laziness is. You've been given a responsibility, and you skip it. Or at best, you give a half-hearted effort toward it. So what's the charge? What's the confrontation here in this particular verse? The author of Hebrews is charging his readers with laziness regarding their interaction with biblical doctrine and biblical practice. He's accusing them of laziness as they relate to doctrine and the way you live it out. He's accusing them of that. The message wasn't too complicated. If there was no glaring fault with the messenger, their lack of response to the word could only mean one thing, and that is they simply did not care at that point in time. The gospel and its entailments for daily life, it didn't didn't mean much to them anymore. 
they didn't really care about it. At this point in their life, they could only tolerate what would support their own comfort. You don't have to turn there right now, but you all know the passage in First in Second Timothy four, Paul's command to preach the word. You know that passage? You have the command, preach the word. Now, why does Paul tell Timothy to do that? Preach the word. Why? Because for what time's going to come? The time's going to come when they're not going to endure sound doctrine. They're going to want to have their ears, same word we have in our context here, they want to have their ears tickled, made to feel better. They want to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they're going to turn away their ears, same word again, from the truth and turn aside to what? To myths. What was happening that brought them to such a low place in their walk with God? Because this is truly a low place, isn't it? For someone to stand up or to, read, to write a letter to a group of Christians and say, you guys have become dull of fear and you don't care about the message of the gospel anymore. What had to have been going on in their life to bring them to such a low spot? In the historical background, we know this was happening. We know that they were facing serious persecution from the government of that day. Serious persecution. And we'll talk more about this as we study Hebrews. And what's your natural tendency when you face something like that? You're going to evade it, right? You're going to try to get out of it. But what happened in the process of them trying to get out of this persecution? Or at least thinking about getting out of this persecution. What had to happen in the process? What sin did they fall into in the process? They were straining out anything that sounded like doctrine that would let, to call them to let go of this comfort. Trying to strain out anything that wouldn't fit their pursuit of getting out of persecution. Does that make sense? They were trying to put together what might suit their pursuit at the time. Something that would guard them for persecution. Now, for us, before we start charging them and not thinking about ourselves... We need to direct it back to ourselves. Are we facing this type of persecution that they were? Easily no, we're not. How do we interact with the word of God even in our times of relative peace is the question. This is how we have to apply this to ourselves. There's a process that happens. We fall into the sin of lazy listening. Look at the, listen to this process and you'll all identify this because this is something we've all done. There's a particular sin we want to hold on to, whatever it might be. We, we like it and we don't want to get rid of it. Or maybe it's not even a sin. Maybe it's just a particular course of action, something that we want to do, and we're just, we're just going to go for it no matter what. So it starts with that kind of desire. It starts with that kind of lust. Then, as it turns out, we hear something in Scripture that does not support that view, support that sin. And then we see something else in Scripture that doesn't support it. So no, that's really not something you should be doing. What happens next in this process? We avoid it, don't we? We avoid the scriptures. It's telling us something that we don't want to hear. We say, ah, I'm not really getting much from scripture right now. And that means scripture is not telling you what you want to hear. And then what happens after that? Then we enter into a state of laziness. Lazy in the ears. Where we only hear what we want to hear from God's word. This is what we have all done. And what's the outcome? No growth, no perseverance. All we're left with is a hard heart at the end of this process. It stifles our growth in Christ. It makes us want to give up on the Christian life because the Christian life seems to be the source of our problems anyway, so why not get rid of it? 
When you get this deep, it seems like your walk with Christ is the source of your problems and not the way out of your problems. And it seems this way because your sin and your sense of self-preservation have turned biblical priorities upside down. This is what happens when you become lazy in the years. This is truly a mark of spiritual immaturity. It's one that hurts because we can all identify with it. But it's something we're called to grow out of. I'm not going to say that all struggle is going to be erased and that we're going to be perfectly fine after this, but we can grow to a mature place where we do crave God's solution to our problems and to our trials. We can get to that place by His grace, through Christ. That's the first mark, easy listening. What's the second mark? The second mark of spiritual immaturity is an inconsistency between time and development. An inconsistency between time and development. You see that also in verse 12, or the beginning of verse 12. Let's zero in on the beginning of that verse, okay? Look at the beginning of verse 12. Not a complete sentence, just the starting of the sentence, but it says a very important thing for us to stop and look at. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. You ought to be teachers by this time. How do you know if you're spiritually immature with the second mark? If your degree of growth is inconsistent with the amount of time you've had to grow, it's a clear sign. If you've, been, if you've been in the Christian faith for a long time, professed Christ for a long time, and that time doesn't have much to show for it, it's a clear sign of immaturity, a clear sign you have not been growing. This is a message on maturity, but it is not, first and foremost, a message for new converts. And get this, this is not directly for new converts. How can you say that? It's right here in the text. It says, by this time, because of all the time you've had, in other words, there should be something to show for it. How much time had they had? How much time had these Hebrews had to grow in the faith? It doesn't tell us how many calendar years, does it? It doesn't tell us how many months. It doesn't tell us how many exactly what the dates were. But the implication is that they've had more than sufficient time to grow to a actually high degree of spiritual maturity. Now, when I say the word degree, is that something arbitrary? Just kind of making it up and say, you need to get to this particular degree of spiritual growth. Am I, we sit to make that up now and try to guess where that is? Again, look at what the text says. What is the degree? What's the standard here? They should be teachers at Paideia, right? No, they should be teachers. It's as if the author is saying, considering the amount of time you've had to grow, you should be able to get up here and teach this stuff yourself. You should be the teacher. And we need to make a qualification here. Does this mean that they should all have been official teachers in the church? They should all have been elders, teachers? Is that true? It's not what it's saying there at all. I think there is something we need to look at. Or you don't have to turn there right now, but James 3.1 says what? Let not many of you become teachers. Why? Knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. So it's not saying that everyone should be an official teacher, but it does mean three things. It means that they should have reached the highest that teachers have in terms of how they know the Word of God and how they live out the Word of God, this consistency between doctrine and practice. It also means they should have been teaching themselves. They should be able to counsel their own souls, counsel their own hearts. Know enough of Scripture to say, yeah, I'm struggling with that, but I know what Scripture says. I'm going to counsel my heart to grow past this. Now, I'm not saying they have to be all independent and never talk to anybody. I'm not saying that because, number three, 
they should have all been able to point each other back to Christ. I think it's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 3, where he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, doing what? Teaching and admonishing who? One another. With psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This idea of teaching each other, members of the church, encouraging each other. And we see, apparently, this was a community of people and of believers who were not doing that. They were draining each other. And who did it take to encourage them? Who did it take to confront them? Who was it? It's the author, whoever that might have been, but he was someone who was currently not with them. Someone from the outside at that point in time. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we apply this is, are we behind? Are we behind in our growth? I still remember something as clear as day. I was only, I was 19, I say only 19, like as if I'm 75. I was 19 years old. I was a sophomore in college, and I was sitting in a Monday night American literature class. Who's taking a Monday night American literature class? I won't recommend it either. I barely stayed awake for that class. It's harder to stay awake in that class than it is in here. Trust me. But something woke me up one night. Something woke me up on one of those Monday nights. We were uh, studying American literature, studying different uh, writers in, in, uh, in the States. And we got a, this uh, literature we were going to study from this theologian in America named Jonathan Edwards. Who's heard of Jonathan Edwards? I think we all have. I had already known of Jonathan Edwards, but I never really read much of him. And our teacher made us in class read his 70 resolutions. Who's heard of those and who's read some of them at least? One of them maybe? You guys aren't hand raisers either. So what struck me was how old was Jonathan Edwards when he started writing those? He was 19, same age as me at the, at the time. And here's one that stuck out to me. He said, this is Revolution number 28, he said, Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in knowledge of the same. This was a 19-year-old writing, and here's me as another 19-year-old thinking, wow, when's the last time I wrote any kind of prayer or resolution like that? My first thought was, I am behind. I'm behind in my growth. We are accountable for how we spend our time. Is that true or false? We are accountable for how we spend our time in this Christian life. The more time that passes the more accountability that we have. Is this true? By making this up. It's true that our accountability grows in terms of our spiritual growth. So how should we respond? We need to avoid certain responses. Many of us waste all of our time thinking about all the time that we have wasted. That's not going to help. That's going to be self-defeating. That's going to be dishonoring to God. Others of us waste our time being bitter. Listen to this. Being bitter at God's providence that he did not work in our lives the way he worked in someone else's life. That, too, is self-defeating, and that is dishonoring to God. Is it still called today? It's still called today. We still have time. We don't have much time, but we still have time to pursue Christ. If we are behind, it's still hope. We can still pursue Christ. We can still pursue his word. So this inconsistency between time and development is a sign of spiritual maturity. But again... We can grow, and that's what we're going to be called to do, is to grow. Let's move on to the third mark. And I do believe this is really what's at the heart of the problem. The third mark is a need for basic, for gospel basics all over again. A need for gospel basics all over again. In the second part of verse 12. 
Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Please don't misunderstand this at all. Does a day ever go by when you don't need a reminder of the gospel? For even the most mature Christian, does a day ever pass when you don't need that reminder? Not a chance, okay? We need reminders of the gospel every day and throughout every day. But that's the whole point. The Hebrews were neglecting this daily reminder of the gospel. They were neglecting the gospel at this point, period. They had covered up this most fundamental aspect of the Christian life. They were covering up this work of Christ on behalf of sinners. And they'd become, again, lazy in their listening. So let's let's look more at the sentence we started in verse 12. Let's catch up, look down at that verse again. Even though by this time, even though by now you should be teachers, even though that's a reality, what's the reality for them at this point? You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. There are two things that are clear from this context. As, as, as the context of Hebrews as we studied it. Had, had these Hebrews heard the gospel clearly? Are there are clues in the context that they had. That's true, they had. Said in, in chapter 2, it says they had heard the gospel. And then also in chapter 2, so great a salvation was confirmed to them. So the message of the gospel was something that had clearly been delivered to them. That's true. That, that point is true. Second point that's true is that they had made a profession of faith in Christ. That's true from the context. In chapter 3, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And we saw it in chapter 4 a few weeks ago. Let us hold fast our confession. So these were people who had heard the gospel clearly and people who had made a profession of allegiance to Christ, faith in Christ. Those things are both true, but they had failed, again, to grow properly. The lack of growth in this context created a need. What was the need? They needed discipleship 101 all over again. They needed the basics all over again. They needed someone else to teach them the elementary principles of the oracles of God. This word elementary principles, in Greek it's an educational metaphor. It's really just the the ABCs, the basic components of a subject or elements, something that makes the very foundation of learning, fundamental principles. That's all we're talking about here, just the very, very basic aspects of the gospel. And what the author is saying here is that this is, you guys don't have an excuse. This is absolutely unnecessarily redundant that you would need this. This word again, you see the word again in that verse, is a very strong word in that context. It's actually the very first word in that phrase in Greek. So you could literally translate it, again, you have need for someone to teach you. It's a very emphatic word. So this is a condition of spiritual immaturity. It required a new teaching diet. Required a new teaching diet. Well, that brings us to Mark number four. Mark number four, spiritual indigestion. Spiritual indigestion. And I chose that word because it's right there in the context. A graphic word. Verses 12 through 13. What does it say? You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Why? For he is an infant. 
Now imagine changing your diet this week. You wake up tomorrow morning, drink eight ounces of milk. Some people don't like milk. This is a problem, isn't it? Then you get to lunchtime, eight ounces of milk again. And then dinner time, another eight ounces of milk. Okay, I'm good. I'm good for the day. I'm at my count. That's a very silly illustration, but it proves the point that adults, right, have mature digestive system. You can handle and you, you need all these nutrients. You need a balanced diet. You need stronger foods to help you survive, okay? These things are essential. All that to say this. Is there a group of people in the world who can live on only milk? Looking at a couple of them right now. Who are they? They're babies, little baby infants, up till I don't know how many months. It's been too long now. I've already forgotten when they start eating normal foods. But babies live on milk 24-7 when they're infants. The Hebrews had reverted back to this place, this absurd place of spiritual infancy. That's exactly where they were. These silly illustrations prove this point. This is very similar how to Paul address the Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as we're talking about this immaturity, needing milk, and talking about carnality, all these things making us ask more and more questions about how can these people be truly believers? We're going to be answering those questions as we go. But look at 1 Corinthians 3. Paul talks to the Corinthians the same way. Verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants, same word that we have in our text, infants in Christ. I gave you milk, same word in our context, to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, because you are still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Same charge of spiritual infancy, people who are infants in Christ. And just so you know, just as a side note, there's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 that talks about longing for this, the pure milk of the word. Different word there, okay? So don't get all freaked out about that. It's a different word. But we're going to have a lot more to say about this in the coming weeks. But for now, what does it mean to be unaccustomed to the word of righteousness? Unaccustomed, not accustomed to the word of righteousness. That word unaccustomed means untested, unacquainted with. Something you're not used to. Just like if you tried to give a little baby a, li- a little T-bone, what's going to happen to what's going to happen to Gideon? He's he's going to not like that at all. He's not going to be handle. It's going to be indigestion, right? He's not going to be willing to handle it. This is how they were, how these Hebrews were with the word of righteousness. They weren't able to take it. One Bible teacher says this word of righteousness refers to advanced theological destruction. Listen to this. Advanced theological destruction that's instruction that stresses the cost and responsibilities of discipleship. So, yes, it's advanced. It's theological. It's something beyond the basics. But what, it, what makes it difficult is not, again, that it's super complicated, but that it's going to call you to do something. It's going to stress the cost. It's going to stress the responsibilities. The author of Hebrews is calling these believers to apply the gospel to some of life's most difficult circumstances. And he knows that if he tries to push them to do this in their immature state that they're in at this point, if he does that, they're going to end up with spiritual indigestion. That's going to be the issue. And that's why he says he can't keep going. He says you won't be able to handle it. You won't be able to handle more teaching. You need to stop right where you are and get the basics all over again. For us, 
the message of the gospel. It's a whole message. It's a whole message. The gospel is not, first and foremost, an intellectual message. Does it have intellectual elements? Yeah, it's logical, it's coherent, it makes sense, but it's not just that. The gospel addresses the whole person. It's a whole message. People say, well, you've heard this a hundred times. Well, he said he really understands the gospel, but he doesn't ever live it out. Is there such a person? We really, when it boils down to, is there such a person? Who says, yeah, he, got, he's, he knows all the facts, he's got it all down, he knows it perfectly, but he doesn't care. Is there such a person? I would say that it's only the person who doesn't understand the gospel is the person who doesn't apply it. Someone who truly does not understand what the gospel really is is the person who's not truly going to apply it to all life circumstances. Meat doesn't just mean learning more and more data about scripture even though that's part of it. Perseverance during those times is going to talk about faith in Christ. Now, Paul, want, or Paul, that doesn't betray what I believe about the author of Hebrews, by the way. <laughs> the author of Hebrews wants to say more and more and more about the priesthood of Christ. Is that advanced information? Is the priesthood of Christ advanced information? Yeah, I'd say it is. Is that addressed in this kind of specific language, in this great detail, is that addressed anywhere else in Scripture? No, it's not. It's addressed, this advanced teaching, this specific teaching about the priesthood of Christ is addressed only in the book of Hebrews. And he wants them to get to that point, but he has to address their immaturity in the process. So what's at stake with this new information about Christ is the application of it. And that's what he really cares about. Perseverance during those times of trouble, that is what he wants them to apply. And he wants them to apply this information about Christ, who he is, what he's done as their high priest. He wants them to apply this to their persecution, to their times of trouble, so they won't give up, so they keep on going. So, the spiritually immature are marked by lazy listening. They're marked by an inconsistency between time and development. They have a need for gospel basics all over again. They have spiritual indigestion. Mark number five, they are untrained in spiritual senses. They have untrained spiritual senses. Verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Why do kids need parents? Why do kids need parents? Very easy question. Very easy answer. It's because 99% of the things that they do are either harmful to them or deadly. Almost every decision they make when they're at that early stage is going to hurt them. And that's why God's given children parents. Whenever our youngest was even younger, he uh, saw a little hole in the wall, which was a, to him a keyhole. Somehow he ended up with some keys and thought it would be a good idea to stick that key into the keyhole, which was an electrical socket. Uh, just at the right time, I don't know how it happened, but Savannah saw it, and she did some kind of super mom, you know, thing when she rips him away from the wall, and he's fine. He didn't touch it. Actually, I wouldn't have any boys left if it weren't for Savannah. Uh, there could be many stories I could tell. But the point is that his senses were untrained to know what was wise, what was foolish, what was basic, and, and so on. Now, in this verse, verse 14, we have the opposite. He gives us a fresh description, someone who's not immature, but someone who's mature. And how is that person described? 
This person is described, what kind, of, what kind of ability does he have? He's someone who can discern between good and evil. He can tell the difference between right and wrong. Decisions that are going to be good for his spiritual growth and decisions that are going to be bad for his spiritual growth. Again, not perfection, but maturity. Someone who's grown up in the faith. This person knows those kind of things. He can see them in context. He can see them as they come to him in real life, in real time, space, and history. He can see these things and have the ability to discern them. Where does this ability come from? Again, look at the verse. Where does it come from? Why can he discern this way? It's because he has mature, trained, spiritual senses. That's what the answer is in the text. He's reached that place, again, not where he's plateaued and doesn't need to grow anymore, but he's reached a place of maturity in his life. And because of that, he's trained. How do we train our spiritual senses? How do we do this? Because we all want this at this point, don't we? we? We've been identified. We've been marked out. We've all seen points. Maybe all these points have hit us in our own hearts. How do we start growing? How do we start growing past this? I think we need to pursue the normal process of growth in Christ. We need to pursue the normal process. And what's the normal process? We need to say this first. When it comes to our growth, what are we always seeking? We're always seeking one big, spectacular event, aren't we? Who's heard a life-changing sermon? Uh, I have. I'll raise my hand. The rest of you haven't. Me and, me and Dave, so I appreciate that. Um, who's had a life-changing circumstance? Something from that point on, it redirected the course of your life. Me and Dave and Bob. Okay. <laughs> now, is that how we normally grow? Is that how we normally start progressing on to maturity? Those are amazing when they do happen, but that's not the normal process of growth. Okay. How is it that we normally grow? We normally grow through little changes that happen over a long period of time, don't we? Something very small, maybe. Maybe after church, someone just takes you aside, and maybe they don't even intend to, but something they say is an admonishment to you, maybe a rebuke, or maybe an encouragement, or whatever, or what have you. And you think about it, okay. And then maybe that makes a little change in your life. And then the next week, something similar happens. Then maybe one morning you're reading scripture and think, yeah, I've, I've been blowing that. And then it doesn't make a humongous, earth-shattering impact at that moment. You say, wow, my life has changed, and I'm a completely different man now. But it's something small that happened at that little point in time. And what happens after that happens over and over and over and over again? What happens? You grow. You grow in Christ. This is the normal process of growth. Listen to this, because we've already talked about time. Time in itself doesn't guarantee that you're going to have great amount of spiritual growth. But time is nonetheless required. Time is going to be required for this. So here's one really basic suggestion. Whenever something like that happens, and thinking about Jonathan Edwards' resolutions maybe think about this. If you read through those, you can read between the lines and think, wow, that day when he wrote that down, something happened that day that really bugged him or encouraged him or something he saw in some other person that he never wanted to do himself, and he wrote it down and made a resolution not to do that. And I think you see the same thing with Jonathan Edwards and how he grew, making those little marks over time. So why not do that? Why not in a book or note card, whatever the case may be, just make, mark a little prayer down. Little opportunity for growth, write it down and pray about it and then review it later on, also like Edwards did. I think that would be a very helpful way to grow. So those are the five marks that this passage gives us. Could we have a whole series on spiritual maturity and look at all parts of the Bible and see different implications? Sure, 
But those are the five in this text, and those are plenty enough to expose us and to help us hopefully be motivated to grow past them. So as you take this passage home with you, I'm going to leave you with a few comments of application again. One is, do you care enough to confront? I was talking with one of you this week, and we both commiserated, saying, yeah, we neither of us like to confront. It's something that we don't enjoy, but we realize, hey, there's sometimes we need to do this. And to do it, it takes a great deal of courage, doesn't it? Second thing, second question I have for you. Do you care enough to confront with wisdom and humility? That's when you really know if you actually care about the person, if you're going to do it with real biblical strategy, real biblical wisdom, and true humility on the inside, not just to prove your point. Do you care enough to do that? I think it's what the author of Hebrews did with these believers. And when it comes to this particular topic of immaturity in Christians, we are very good at seeing it in everybody else and spotting it. As soon as you see it, boom, that person's immature. And nine times out of ten, we might be right. But we are not that great at spotting it in ourselves. We also need to be careful about just looking at everybody else and taking that little slice from their life and judging them based on just that and think, wow, that person is in big trouble. We might not know what that person has gone through that week or in his or her life. We might not have any idea. So be careful about just taking that little slice and then confronting them just based on that and assuming that they are immature because of that. The point I'm making is not to say that this is all relative and doesn't really matter. The point I'm making is that it's not your job to be the self-appointed judge, jury, executioner of every believer you think that is immature. That's not our job. The easy thing to do is just to write the person off and say, wow, that person, yep, they're just an unbeliever and move on to the next person. That is very easy to do, but that's not what we are called to do as the body of Christ. Next thing we have to say, we should have said this all throughout the beginning, all throughout the middle, all throughout the end, and that is, as we pursue growth, there is absolutely no merit in any of our efforts apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. There is absolutely no merit in our own work without his righteousness. We can journal all we want. We can make 70 resolutions. We can make 100 resolutions and beat Edwards. But there's no merit in any of that unless we have the righteousness of Christ on our behalf, in our account. We're right with God because of his work on the cross, dying for our sin, rising again, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God for us today. Next thing I'll say is that there's no growth unless we are first convicted of sin and have repentance. For us to see the need of Christ anew again, we have to be deconstructed, don't we? We have to be broken down. Our pride has to be broken down. All of our great ideas about ourselves have to be broken down. Our selfish ambitions have to be exposed. All this has to happen. We have to be convicted of sin before we're going to grow. We have to be shown that we don't have strength without Christ before we can grow, before we can go on to the next stage. And what happens when we're deconstructed like that and we're exposed, we're convicted, and we find that repentance of Christ is, is the only way? What happens? Christ gets all the glory in the end. He gets all the glory for our growth, not us. He gets all the glory because we see him as the true great high priest who we can enjoy forever. No hope without him. Let's go to him in time of prayer and ask him for his help to do the things that we've talked about and to pursue growth in Christ this week. Let's pray together.
Father, we do love you. We do love your word. We, we are reluctant to say this, but we do love that you're willing to confront us. It does not feel good for our sin to be exposed, but we know that we have no hope without that. We know that we need to be deconstructed. We know that we need to be convicted of our sin before we can truly see that we need Christ and that he is our truly our only hope. Pray, Lord, that we'd be people of the book this week. I pray that we'd be people who encourage each other and help us to be diligent in this, help us to be diligent to grow and pursue maturity in Christ. And we do pray this again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all are dismissed.